Ellie McLean is a holistic nutritionist and real food lover who works with the team at The Natural Nutritionist. Ellie is also a marathon runner, a holistic athlete, of course, a wannabe yogi, and yes, her favorite food is Gail. Ellie believes that food is fuel, but above all else, it should be enjoyed. She has followed a vegan protocol on and off for some time, but more recently has found it not conducive to thriving while competing in marathons. In search of understanding for why, Ellie pursued comprehensive gut health testing, which revealed parasites and bacterial imbalances that were the underlying cause. Her own experience has not diminished her passion for assisting vegan athletes in refining their nutritional needs in order to thrive. An example of precisely why good nutrition is relative to the individual. Today's conversation gets into the nitty gritty of what it takes to thrive as a vegan or vegetarian athlete. It's a conversation very much relevant to all athletes, whether they eat animal protein or not, as we dive into nutrient density, nutrient timing, and gut health as well. Our hope is that vegan and vegetarian athletes listen up and learn about the parameters that they can address and measure in order to perform and feel vital. And then the athletes eating animal proteins gain a greater understanding of the importance of eating your greens and maintaining a healthy gut balance. You've done all the right things. You've followed the program, but you're tired and the results are hard to come by. You know there has to be a better way. Perhaps you're struggling to put the puzzle pieces together from training, recovery, nutrition, gut health, to hormone health and optimal wellness. Each season on Healing Grumpy Athletes podcast, your host, Katie Pettuccini from Holistic Endurance, will help put the puzzle pieces together and ensure you can achieve and express your athletic potential holistically. Katie is a self-confessed hormone nerd, endurance coach, wellness advocate, and triathlete, here to educate, inspire, and distill wisdom in an effort to shift up endurance norms. Grab yourself an almond latte, a herbal tea, or perhaps a red wine to focus your mind enjoy the show welcome back to healing the grumpy athletes podcast we have ellie from the natural nutritionist here to talk all things real food nutrition athlete performance but specifically vegetarian and vegan diet so thanks for coming along ellie hi katie thanks very much for having me on the show now, we're diving into a pretty detailed or specific topic. Uh, so before anyone that isn't vegan or vegetarian switches off the podcast, uh, we do want to preface that this information will still be really relevant and valid for those who um, still eat meat or aren't interested in that way of living because we're going to touch on gut health and pathology markers and just general wellness for athletes that's still very much applicable. So Ellie, tell us why you feel so passionate about veganism and, and vegetarian in athletes specifically. Yeah, um, like most people in the health space, my passion really comes from uh, my own my own experiences um, and really wanting to help, I guess, benefit people based on what I've been through and trying to help people save time and um, save costs and all those sorts of things just through basically learning from my experiences. So um, as you know, I, well, I consider myself an athlete. I'm, I'm a marathon runner, which I was a slightly better one, but 
we'll we'll save that for another conversation. You're pretty thick um, ass, but anyway. But uh, have always been interested in 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 exercise, and particularly endurance exercise, um, and obviously always interested in nutrition and diet and and helping individuals to get the most out of their training and performance through their diet. Um, in terms of vegan and vegetarianism, though, it's something that. I really started exploring and, and educating myself on about five years ago. I moved to the US and probably because I didn't have many friends when I first moved there, I started doing a lot of reading on the, the meat and livestock in, in, industry there and um, was just really turned off by it, um, was really turned off by the use of antibiotics and hormones and in particular, learning that the average chicken that is consumed in the US is is hatched, raised and slaughtered within a 19-day period. Mm. So it's really since my time in the US that I've been interested in um, veganism and, and vegetarianism and since, since working with athletes one-on-one, um, I really want to make sure that if they are as turned off by the meat industry as I am uh, and decide to go down the route of excluding animal proteins from their diet, whether it be entirely or partially, um, that they're doing it right. Um, you know, I learned, I learned that excluding animal protein from my diet entirely was not the best for me um, and didn't help me to get the the most or the best out of my training. So I'm really passionate now about making sure that if athletes do go down down that route, then um, then they do it right um, mm-hmm. and they they do make sure that they're they're paying attention to their body and um, and not excluding certain foods and food groups at the at the risk of their own health and their their training and performance. Yeah. So would you say that it is possible to maintain a high level of athletic performance while having a vegan or vegetarian diet? Yeah. the The short answer to that question is is yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can say that because there are some incredible athletes out there that are doing it. You know, probably people listening to this podcast are, are familiar with um, ultra endurance athlete Rich Roll. Um, some of you may or may not be aware of um, the Williams sisters who've also gone um, vegan and, and obviously still performing at pretty incredible levels. So there are athletes out there that are doing it um, and I think they're they're able to perform really well because they're they're really um, they're really precise with their diets um, and they're not just going down the route of um, the, the what I call the starchitarian route, yeah. um, which is becoming vegan and just eating carbohydrates only, um, but they're really prioritizing whole foods. Um, lots of vegetables, so a diet full of antioxidants and phytochemicals, um, and also eating good quality fats, so getting a lot of um, omega-3. So eating things that are supporting them in the process. Um, I think where people come unstuck is when they don't pay attention to their diet. So the real risk is those athletes who decide to become vegan or vegetarian, but they 
they, they pay no more attention to their diet than they did when they were eating animal products. So it's still um, a poor quality diet. So short, short answer to the question is yes, um, athletes can absolutely thrive, um, but they have to be willing to to educate themselves and put in the time and effort to actually um, create a meal plan, create a diet that is going to support them and their training needs. Yeah, and I I second that thoroughly. I mean, from from the experiences I've had with athletes that have gone down this route, it just takes a little bit more diligence and it, it takes more consideration. You can't just wing it because you do have to focus on so many vitamins and minerals um, and proteins to get that balance right. Um, and there's obviously a lot of myths out there that have directed uh, people towards um, vegan and vegetarian diets. What's, I guess, the biggest mishap or um, hurdle that myth. you've, yeah, myth that you've come across in this? age where it's becoming a little bit of a a popular thing or a fad and perhaps Mm. people aren't doing it for the right reasons sometimes? Yes, spot on. I'm so glad you said that because um, I did mention that, you know, when when you asked me about why it's something that I'm passionate about, um, I think there are people making decisions about their diet and they're not necessarily looking at all the information that's that's available. Um, I think one of the biggest... One of the biggest myths out there is that animal products cause cancer. Mm. Um, you know, people have read books like The China Study or uh, How Not to Die and they are left thinking that animal protein is the, the cause of cancer or mm. by not eating animal proteins, they'll reduce risk of, of getting cancer. So that's probably the biggest, the biggest myth. I would say people need to look into the populations that are studied in um, in those books and actually look at the quality of meat that's being consumed in those studies because that's actually what's the underlying cause of the of the cancer. Yeah, more likely oh. the antibiotics and the hormones and the artificial crap. Yes, exactly. And the grains. Exactly, the grain-fed animals, that mm. sort of thing. So um, that's probably the biggest myth and I think um, – the other one that is also really concerning is young athletes who um, are perhaps being pressured to look at body composition um, and to, to, to reduce body fat. And so they think that removing an entire food group um, is, is an easy way of, of helping to achieve that goal. So that's, um, that's one of my other concerns when it comes to people going down the route of emitting animal animal products from their diet. Yeah, that's a huge concern. And I think um, the days of Instagram and beautiful photos of food um, and, the, and the smoothie bowls and the acai bowls, etc., are also facilitating this um, quote-unquote picture of healthy food that can be detrimental to an athlete's system. Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, we, we could go into a whole conversation around social media and the impact that it's having yeah. on people's lifestyle choices, couldn't we? Because it's, um, uh, you know, it's the highlights reel, looking at people's Instagram um, pages. And so, yeah, you see people that are, you know, supposedly thriving on certain diets 
themselves, but um, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes and, and what health challenges they're facing themselves. That's it. They could look wonderful on the outside and be quite lean and athletic and getting those performance um, metrics, but what if they can barely get out of bed most days or it's a real struggle and they're needing lots of caffeine or they've from females they might have lost their menstrual cycle or guys don't have libido there could be so many things going on that we don't know behind the scenes so that's important message not just assume things from a a social media feed but i certainly see like that the food choices can be of a concern and and uh tend to be on that processed end what did you call it carbo a starchitarian. Starchitarian. So yeah, yeah. tell us about the dangers um, or the complications with um, lending in that direction. Yeah, uh, well, there's a couple of places that I could start here, but um, obviously many of your listeners and, and a lot of your clients would be um, quite well across the benefits of lower carbohydrate, higher fat protocols, Um, for the sake of becoming fat adapted. Um, So we have to keep that in mind and all the benefits of being fat adapted in mind. So um, when I say fat adapted, just for the benefit of the listeners, that is that metabolic reorchestration of, um, I guess, teaching your body how to use fat as the primary fuel source and therefore um, reserving stored carbohydrate for um, for higher intensity bouts of physical activity. And, and when, we're, when we're in that place, it means that uh, we can benefit from a day-to-day perspective by reducing inflammation, reducing cravings, reducing risk of injury. Um, but also on race day, it means we can benefit from um, reducing the, the need for exogenous carbohydrate intake um, and therefore reducing risk of GI upset and distress on race day. So, for vegans and vegetarians, if they decide to remove animal products and proteins, um, but I guess then just leave themselves eating the what's left of the standard Australian diet, which is, you know, like Poor. basically cereals, <laughs> grains, pasta, bread, um, maybe some dairy if they're, if they're still eating dairy, um, it means that then it's much harder for them to become fat adapted and therefore experience the benefits of being fat adapted. Mm. Um, we then also have to think about nutrient density. Um, and so if, uh, if somebody's removing animal proteins from their diet and not actually looking at including all of the beautiful fresh fruits and vegetables and healthy fats, then they really are left with... Um, a nutrient-poor diet of cereals, grains and, and starchy vegetables. Yeah, and for athletes new to this concept, um, it essentially means that you are much more likely to bonk earlier and harder, uh, which no one wants to do. No, exactly, exactly. And um, let's just be clear that much likely to, to get that nutritional bonk or hitting the wall, as some people would call it, on yeah. race day. yeah. Okay, so with a lot of nutrient density coming from animal products, like the uh, fermented dairies, red meat, fishes, bone broths, how do vegan athletes make up for the lack of those foods in a in a vegan protocol? How do they make up for lack of those foods? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So those those foods that 
you just mentioned, they're obviously really great uh, and bioavailable sources of um, some really key vitamins and minerals, so things like B12, things like zinc, omega-3 fatty acids, iron, amino acids, um, and the reason I highlight those particular vitamins and minerals is because um, they are really they are far less bioavailable and if not available at all um, for people that are following a vegan protocol or people that are eating only plant-based protein sources. So by and large, we can make up for a lack of these things if you are eating only plant-based, but it does take consideration. So coming back to what we said before about you know having to actually put some time into planning your meals um, you do have to do that if you don't want to run the risk of falling short on these certain um, vitamins and minerals. Um, as you know, I'm all about prioritising real food first. So, um, you know, if you are vegan or vegetarian, looking to, to great sources of, of um, good quality fats and zinc and iron through things like green leafy vegetables, nuts and seeds, um, seaweed products, uh, that's wonderful. But you also have to be realistic and understand that not all of these can be found um, in, in a vegan diet in particular. So therefore, you do have to be open to supplementation and looking at what supplements might be relevant for you. So with the plant-based foods and the fats and the nuts and the seeds that we need to mm. prioritise on a vegan protocol, can we go to some detail around quantity? Because I also feel that that gets missed um, to ensure that there's enough bulk of nutrients there. Yeah, so in terms of quantity, if um, if an individual is by and large following my guidelines for building their plate um, and achieving overall macronutrient requirements, then they should hit their requirements for the key minerals like zinc, um, also iron and also calcium. Um, but there are some that I highlighted that really supplementing is, is probably going to be necessary. Yeah, so, so with those mac- thing- macros, what, are, how, what volume of, um, say, leafy greens are we talking about and plant-based products? Yeah, so... Um, we always go by the rule at the Natural Nutritionist that you should be aiming for two cups of vegetables per meal. So that means around about six cups of green leafy vegetables over the course of the day, which for most individuals um, is a stark contrast to what they would be doing. Yeah, and even um, animal um uh, meat eaters need to be doing the same, like just oh, in- increasing their plant-based foods. Definitely, definitely. That's that's why the, the biggest risk of somebody who does eat animal protein just, you know, converting over to a plant-based diet by just removing um, animal products is, is so risky because they're not eating enough of those nutrient-dense foods to begin with or those nutrient-dense plant-based foods to, to begin with. Okay. Um, so two cups of the um the nutrient dense 
uh, non-starchy vegetables at every meal should be the goal. Um, but then also, depending on the individual, because obviously um, nutrition is very relative, um, around about two serves of good quality fats per meal um, is what people should be aiming for, athletes should be aiming for. Uh, and this is, you know, whether you're vegan, vegetarian, um, or if you if you do eat animal products, but two serves of good quality fats. And um, if, you, if you are vegan or vegetarian, then these good quality fats are going to be coming from things like avocados, um, nuts and seeds, so things like pumpkin seeds, things like sesame seeds, um, walnuts, almonds, and then also their butters, so things like tahini, almond butter, um, and oils, so mm-hmm. olive oil, coconut oil, they're all things that absolutely need to be included. Yeah, brilliant. And what about our proteins? Proteins. I mean, I think um, it's it is a bit of a myth that vegans and vegetarians um, don't meet protein requirements. Um, you know, a lot of the research out, out there does show that they they do meet their protein requirements. But what what you need to be conscious of on a vegan or vegetarian protocol is that you're getting or achieving your amino acid requirements. So for those listeners out there, amino acids are the the building blocks of proteins. Um, And there are certain amino acids that we call essential amino acids. They need to come from our diet. And animal protein sources contain all of these essential amino acids, but most plant-based proteins don't contain all of these essential amino acids. So that means that um, if you're following a plant-based diet, then you need to get protein from a broad range of sources to ensure that you're getting all of these amino acids in in a day. So without animal protein in the diet, some great sources of protein to look to are things like non-genetically modified and organic tofu or tempeh. Hemp is also a great source of protein, so hemp seeds and hemp powder. Um, There's also pea protein powder that can be included in diet. Um, So they're they're sort of the, I guess, the the key sources of protein, but not to forget that we're also going to get protein from other things like nuts and seeds. So the other thing about protein, like I talked about the the need to get a a broad range of proteins in the diet. The other key thing um, is is about digestion of these proteins so that we're actually um, being able to to utilise, you know, to break down and absorb the protein um, and in particular um, things like iron as well. So this is where gut health becomes really important, and I'm not sure if I'm moving on a little bit too quickly. Um, do you want me to dive into gut health, or do you have any other questions around sort of building your plate? And no, we covered building the plate. So if we just summarise the plate, it's two cups of non-starchy vegetables, two, one to two serves of healthy fats, um, and one serve of protein from yes. those sources that you so recommended. That's the... That's the, the what I call the like the foundations and the the sort of fundamentals of building your plate, um, and obviously we can't forget about the need for um, complex carbohydrates coming from 
whole food sources. Um, you know, I hate for this this myth out there around LCHF that you know if if no carb if low carbohydrate is good, then no carbohydrate is better because it's absolutely not the case. So we do need to be mindful of the need for complex carbohydrates. Um, and those, those sources of complex carbohydrates are going to be things like non-starchy vegetables, so sweet potato, beetroot, parsnip and potato, uh, and also things like quinoa and, and buckwheat. Um, we, also, we also can include um, legumes and lentils in there as well. So whilst they do contain protein, um, I, I think they need to be timed appropriately. So if we think that complex carbohydrates need to be prioritised in that post-training window, so therefore that, that foundation plate that I talked about, if we add a complex carbohydrate to that primarily in the post-training window, then that's a great time for vegans and vegetarians to be including things like their lentils and their, um, and their chickpeas and beans because whilst they're a good source of protein, they also come wrapped up in quite a bit of carbohydrates. So they're, they're really nicely consumed in that post-training window. Yeah, cool. And for anyone wondering what is the post-training window and, and how long is it, that is a pretty big conversation. So I won't make you go there. But um, to summarise, a post-training window of nutrition requirements is quite individual based on uh, athletic ability, stage of season, the type of session, the duration of the session. So it's best to consult with uh, a nutritionist to get that individualized plan around your training for um, when to have those complex carbohydrates. Yeah, that's a whole other big conversation. It's a big one. Definitely. And you mentioned uh, legumes, which I think comes up as quite uh, a concern for some vegans and vegetarians when they transition to that way of eating because it can cause some gut distress. Uh, like you mentioned, gut health is so important. And I do see that's where some vegans have trouble overcoming because their gut health isn't um, populated in the right balance for them to absorb this change in nutrition. So do you want to speak to that gut health topic? Yeah, for sure. So um, the first thing when it comes to gut health is is making sure that you're, you're setting yourself up so that you can break down and therefore absorb nutrients adequately. So um, whilst it sounds really basic, I always talk to my clients about, you know, digestion 101. Um, so that means making sure firstly that when you're eating a meal, you're doing it in a relaxed and calm state. You know, we want your body to be in rest and digest mode versus that fight or flight mode. So to people listening, um, please please don't eat your, your lunch um, or your dinner in front of emails or during a meeting or during a heated conversation. You know, we want your body to be nice and primed and, um, and ready for, for digestion. Yeah, and if um, someone doesn't, uh, say, get into that rest and digest state before a meal, um, you can, one, lose the benefits of that meal because you're not absorbing the nutrients but it can cause GI distress and it sounds so simple and I think that's why this point gets brushed over a little bit because all it takes is a little bit of belly breathing or legs up the wall or just a, a moment uh, before we eat to make a difference but we're all searching for 
um, or focusing on this food, that food, cutting this out, adding this in, when sometimes the solution is just to breathe. Yes, definitely, definitely. I'm, I'm I mean, laughing because um, that was me. I'm allowed to <laughs> allowed to pay myself think, out. It is really key because you can go down the route of looking at, um, you know, what is, you know, sometimes really expensive testing or expensive supplements to help with digestion. But, but really, if you're not getting these foundations right, then, um, then, then that other stuff is a bit too far down the line and potentially, you know, a waste of money. So you can look at what I call a digestion 101, which is eating in a relaxed state. The other thing is actually chewing your food, like how many people are just like food in the mouth, two bites down the hatch, um, and then wondering why excuse me, listeners, there's undigested, you know, food particles in their stool or why they've got low iron levels. Mm. Um, so chewing your food is is really, really important. Um, do an experiment. Go and try and chew a mouthful 20 times and see what it feels like. But it's challenging, but that's really what we should be working towards because, you know, digestion starts in the mouth. We've got enzymes there, which job is to start that process of breaking down food so there's less work for our stomach to do. Um, but then also chewing your food adequately means that the smaller food particles going down to the stomach and therefore more surface area for our stomach acid to work on and, and therefore, uh, you know, food actually being broken down properly so that it can be, can be nicely absorbed. I have to tell you a story. <laughs> Do you want me to hear it? Okay, yeah, I want you to hear it. You'll, la- you'll laugh at me. Okay. <laughs> so back in the day of being a personal trainer, when I thought that six meals a day or even more was the right idea and low calories and we were taught that way in university and that was the idea at the time and I was a mobile personal trainer and so I was always in my car travelling from one client to the next and, of course, uh, trying to fit in as many clients in a day and I would eat my so-called lunch uh on the road like on the passenger seat next to me like making it like I'd get the rice cake out of the packet and put ham like it was terrible I'm making it while I'm driving not only that it was rice cakes and probably not much else (laughs) absolutely terrible and then I'd shove it in my mouth and go to my clients that's lunch and then dinner comes along and I've got an athlete like doing their warm-up on the treadmill and I'm probably eating more rice cakes as they warm up as my dinner I can't believe I lived like that and I wondered why I didn't lose weight. Fascinating. Oh, uh, yeah, I know. Look, and, uh, you know, I've learned the hard way too. I used to eat on the run. I used to eat um, uh, a lot of what was seemingly healthy food but, but not that supportive or conducive to my training or good health. Um, I, I ate really quickly. I had heartburn problems. So I've learned. I've learned the hard way, and that's why um, it is it is really nice to be having these conversations and try and um, you know save some people the heartache. Hundred um, oh, percent agree. <laughs> or give people advice on what they can do to overcome the overcome the issues. Yeah. All right. So sorry for my little story tangent. Back to gut health. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, so yeah. So digestion is one thing. Um, and look beyond those really simple, like foundational things we've talked about, like, you know, being present and not stressed when you're eating and also chewing properly. I guess there are some other things that people can try to, um, support, um, stomach acid production. So the use of things like apple cider vinegar can be looked at. And, um, and then there are some also 
uh, also supplements that sometimes I'll talk with clients about that are really beautiful for just reducing inflammation and um, uh, helping to, I guess, um, heal the gut to some degree. So things like aloe vera and glutamine, which can which can therefore down the line help with um, help with digestion if they're helping to reduce inflammation. So the other thing we need to consider is the impact that our gut bacteria play, which I think is what you were alluding to before. Yeah. Um, but our gut bacteria, you know, we really want to support those benefit beneficial bacteria because they're so important in helping us to digest carbohydrates in creating neurotransmitters so things like serotonin um, they're also really important for energy production and also play a huge role in immune function um, so if we're just if we're just having if we're just eating that you know starchitarian diet then I took that I that I alluded to before, um, then we're not going to be supporting the the proliferation of those benefit benefit. Sorry, let me get my words out. Those beneficial bacteria, um, because it's those non beneficial beneficial bacteria that really feed on sugar and carbohydrates. So we've got to think about getting all of those non starchy vegetables and beautiful plant matters in our diet, so that we can support the benefit beneficial bacteria. Do you want to speak to what sort of symptoms can arise if someone has, say, an undergrowth or an overgrowth um, of certain bacteria in their gut? Yeah, um, there are you know a range of things, um, which is which is why it's such an interesting area, um, which is why I also recommend starting off with something like basic blood tests. Um, so that you can get an idea of where simple blood markers are at um, because this can help us to understand whether it is whether it is your gut that may be leading to symptoms because there are certain symptoms which can very much come down to the bacteria that live in our gut but may also be due to, to other reasons. But some of the things that you can look out for are of course digestive upset so if you've got things like you know constipation or diarrhea or you flip between the two where you've got bloating or heartburn then that could absolutely be a sign or symptom of um you know what we call pathogenic overgrowths um or parasites which you know i hope i hope no one listening to this has got um but they are very common so even they, though we hope people don't, they're, they're surprisingly common. They are surprisingly common. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and I'll talk about, like, testing that can be done because I think people need to be aware of it. Um, but there are other things. You know, if you've got um, muscle aches and pains that just don't seem to be dissipating, you know, despite how much yoga you're doing or rolling you're doing or, you know, magnesium you're helping to have with, or magnesium you're having to help with your recovery, then then that could be a sign of um, bacterial overgrowth. Um, if you're you know having trouble sleeping, if you um, if you've got memory loss, brain fog, those sorts of things, and that that can also be due to the bacteria that's living in your gut, and, um, and that's because well. yeah yeah. I was just going to say the mood picture as well that I see quite frequently. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, people often get get people often think that unless they've got very overt sort of digestive um, issues, then 
they, they don't have to worry about whether they've got bacterial imbalances, but it's actually not the case. You know, um, digestion-wise, you might be fine, um, but you may have, um, you know, mood issues, poor, poor quality sleep um, and, and memory and cognitive function you know, issues, and that can also be due to, to gut bacteria. Yeah, and I think this comes back to another societal um, conversation. But, you know, a lot of people are just pushing further, pushing harder, doing more and fueling it with, say, caffeine beverages. And so it covers up a lot of these true symptoms and being able to read intuitively what's actually happening in the body and paying attention to that brain fog and fatigue. And I feel like it's just, you know, the, the poor memory and... And fatigue, it's, it gets a little bit bragged about or whinged about when it shouldn't be something brushed over. Like, people don't have to feel that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, um, as you and I are very well aware, athletes are the worst, aren't they? <laughs> Sorry, guys. Like, oh, I'm so tired um, you know, yes. because I trained 14 times this week or I ran, um, you know, 80 Ks and cycled a couple of hundred. Um, but... You know, you do need to you need to let go of that ego, um, and you need to really be in tune with your body to understand whether or not those those feelings of fatigue or that poor quality recovery um, is is warranted, or if there's something else going on that needs to be explored. Yeah, and this is deeper. a true true conversation for anyone eating animal proteins or not. You know, it's, it's relevant to both cases. Um, I've certainly seen uh, in my athletes some amazing shifts that I never expected from. Obviously, I know we, we have to work on, on gut health. That's vital for cognition and memory and everything you just mentioned. But one of the really interesting side effects of improvement has been this increased in aerobic capacity and aerobic um, anaerobic threshold as well. I'm just seeing power numbers and heart rate numbers never achieved before by these individuals that have balanced their gut bacteria and removed parasites. Mm-mm. Well, you have to remember that um, these these overgrowth, these bacterial overgrowths and these parasites, they contribute to inflammation and stress internally, right? So if we've if we've got these guys living in our gut, then our body is in a state of fight or flight almost constantly, and we're never going to be able to get the most out of our out of ourselves physically when we're under that sort of pressure. Yeah, and so you mentioned um, testing. What's uh, your first point of call for some gut health testing? Yeah, so look, in a perfect world, everybody would be doing their bioscreen testing um, straight off the bat. So bioscreen do a um, uh, a comprehensive stool analysis, which basically helps to give us a picture as to, to what bacteria is living in your gut. Um, so, you know, right down to the, the strains, how much of them there are, so it's a really great test and allows us to get very specific with the treatment protocol rather than sort of stabbing around in the dark. Yeah, and you can um, also look for parasites too, yeah? Yes, they test for parasites yeah. as well. Uh, so This is just important for people to understand that, you know, you can have too much of a good thing, like your kombuchas that are becoming very vogue. Uh, if you've got an overgrowth of lactobacillus, that's not going to be good for you or you're going to need it in a different dosage and that's where this individualised or um, medicine comes into it. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, that's what I meant. That's you know what I was alluding to when they when I say that this bioscreen testing allows us to get very specific with the treatment protocol because, um, you know, you're right. Going out and supplementing with a specific probiotic strain or drinking a hell of a lot of kombucha, um, you know, whilst it's quote unquote healthy or good for you, um, it may not be right for you as an individual because it may not be supporting the the bacteria that lives in your gut or the imbalance of bacteria mm, so, in your so, gut. So, so, important. So, Bioscreen is, is, an, amazing, um, is an amazing test that, that can be done, which obviously I would recommend, especially to anybody who um, is having or is experiencing issues with their gut or, uh, you know, um, like persistent niggling injuries or um, poor quality sleep or low mood or, or memory. Um, but even as a first point of call, um, comprehensive blood tests, you know, you'd be so surprised by the number of people who come into clinic who haven't had comprehensive bloods done in like over 24 months. Not surprised. Um, so, <laughs> um, you know, even getting that done, um, is really, really helpful. And for anybody following a, a vegan, definitely a vegan protocol and, and vegetarian to some degree, um, I'd be looking to test for certain markers um, probably every six to 12 months. Mm. Um, and that would be things like um, B12, iron, ferritin, zinc and vitamin D. Um, and then, of course, you know, looking at things like a complete blood count um, or Copper. homocysteine levels or yeah. CRP to give us an idea of level of inflammation. But anybody who's listening to this and is following a vegan protocol at the moment, then please, at the bare minimum, on a regular basis, get tested for your B12, vitamin D, zinc, iron and ferritin. Yeah, and that's where a, like an individualised supplement plan can come into it based on those results, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like um, I'm not a fan of broad-spectrum um, vitamin or mineral mm, supplements, so neither. that's why getting tested for these, these particular markers, keeping track of them and then supplementing specifically based on your needs is really, really crucial. Um, but, you know, B12, you could pretty safely say if you're on a vegan protocol, you will need to have in Especially a supplement form because it just can't yeah. be consumed on a purely plant-based diet. Um, but, you know, rather than just going out and getting a supplement off the shelf, please test so you know where you're at um, and, and then you can see, you know, whether or not the supplement protocol that you're following is actually helping to manage your B12 levels. Because if it's not, then you've, you've got to look at um, alternative supplements or you've got to have a hard, really hard look at your diet and, and make some choices. Yeah, that point you made there is, is really crucial. Don't just supplement for the sake of supplement. It can be quite harmful just because something's good for you. You know, the body's quite complex and magnificent and everything's related so just by putting b12 in because we're saying so that it's going to help you today might not be the best idea you know it will impact energy it'll impact mood and um oh digestion like there's so many elements so please do due diligence and do this under the guidance of a of a practitioner 
Definitely. And please don't be fooled into thinking that just because you can buy it off the shelf with the chemist without a script, mm. that it's that it's okay for you to have. Because like you said, Katie, um, you know, everything is interrelated. Um, there's often, you know, um, sort of what we call Goldilocks, Goldilocks scenarios with lots of these um, lots of these markers, you know, we don't want it to be too low and we don't want it to be too high. So that's why the testing and therefore supplementing based on those tests and work with, working with a professional is really, really important. Like the number of people that have come into me and, you know, come in to see me and they're on a vitamin D supplement, for example, because their GP recommended they started taking it three years ago, but they haven't tested their vitamin D since that time. Mm. Um, it's Face incredible. <laughs> and it's it's just not a good practice or habit for people for people to be in because you do, you know, there is usually a pretty fine window of where we want these particular markers to be. Yeah, okay. Circling back to a topic we discussed a bit earlier, which was the fat adaptation and metabolic efficiency. I can certainly see that it would be more challenging for a vegan athlete to become fat adapted. Is it possible? Is it possible? Yeah. Yeah, cool. it, it definitely is. Um, you know, if, if you follow the, the build your plate guidelines that I talked about before, that's a really nice place to start because that immediately means that um, you're going to be eating slightly less in the way of carbohydrates than, than the standard Australian diet. Uh, and in terms of step one in, of fat adaptation, that's it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's really about um, e eating and using carbohydrates strategically um, rather than it being the, um, the, the pillar of your diet like um, most standard Australian diets. So following those build your plate guidelines is the, the first step. Um, in terms of supporting fat adaptation. Um, and then you've got to look at other, the other, I guess, key principles of fat adaptation. So um, looking at your nutrient timing. We talked before um, about the, the need to, to have those complex, complex carbohydrates in the post-training window um, to support glycogen um, replenishment. Uh, and that's obviously really, really key. And so making sure that um, if you are looking at things like lentils and legumes for their protein um, value, then you're prioritising them post-training. And then there are a couple of other principles that we use to support fat adaptation. So faster training is one of those things. Um, I'm sure you, you guys listening will have, um, will have heard uh, the likes of Katie and, and also <laughs> Phil Maftone talk about the benefits of faster training. But it is, it is certainly something that you can use to support fat adaptation. Um, if you've never trained fasted before, then please don't go out tomorrow and, and do a 90-minute run or a, or a two-hour cycle with, without anything in your stomach. But what you can do is start with, you know, a 30-minute moderate session and, and build up from there because that training in that fasted state will really teach your body um, how to ban how to burn fat more effectively. Yeah, brilliant. Um, high intensity interval training is obviously one of you know, something else that we 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 would include in the training regime to support fat adaptation. Um, fat blacks. I don't know if you've talked a lot Ooh, about. The use yeah, of that was going to be my next coffee. Or yeah, fat blacks. my next question was going to be that right. So a bulletproof coffee, coffee plus butter. 
what's yeah. the alternative? What's the alternative? So many alternatives, and I've played around, and I think I've got a pretty good, um, a pretty good balance uh, that I can share with your listeners. Um, but obviously, fundamental to the the fat black or bulletproof coffee or MCT coffee are the MCT oils, so those medium-chain triglycerides, which are really easily digested and absorbed and, and used as a source of energy by the body. Um, they're obviously vegan, or those oils are you know, vegan, so they can be used in a, in a, um, in a fat black or bulletproof. Um, so MCT oil or coconut oil, uh, and then you can use something like an almond butter. Um, or a cacao butter, um, or even a coconut butter, depending on your um, your taste preference. But mm. you can use the combination of the MCT oil or coconut oil, about a teaspoon, with about a tablespoon of one of those other butters that I just mentioned, so almond butter or cacao butter yeah. or um, coconut butter cool. to make your um, your vegan MCT coffee. Hmm. But that's great to have before your fasted session um, or even just uh, you know be- between meals to help with um, to help with those with that intermittent fasting. So intermittent fasting is that something that you've talked about much on the show, Katie? Not as yet, no. Yeah, so so intermittent fasting is one of the other things that you can um, you can you can play around with to support fat adaptation. Um, so that's looking at the the window between meals, first and foremostly, and the goal is to get a, around about four to five hours uh, between meals. And then you can also look at um, the the fasting window overnight. So that's that time between when you have your last meal of the day and when you have your first meal of the next day. There's a lot of really interesting research around intermittent fasting. Um, So, you know, have a look online, jump onto the natural nutritionist and have a look at some of the information we've got there on intermittent fasting. Um, But the research is showing that this 16, 16 and 8-hour ratio is really where we get the biggest bang from our buck from a fat adaptation perspective. So by that, I mean 16 hours between your last meal of one day and first meal of the next day, and therefore an 8-hour eating window. Now, obviously, we would not dive in straight away and just start with that 16, 8 ratio if you've never done intermittent fasting before. Um, So you might want to start off with just looking at a 12-hour overnight fast and then building up to something like 13 and then 14 and then 16. And you might do that um, on, on two days of the week. But that's another strategy that you can use to support fat adaptation. Yeah, I'm glad you gave the specifics and clarified there because that's a, a topic that, like, it's kind of the theme of today, um, good things can be taken too far. And yeah. I, yeah, so yeah. particularly... Yeah, definitely. In, and if, and if we're, we're conscious of hormone levels and, yeah. and recovery and, and general health, then we don't want to dive straight into the deep end um, and, and, you know, start working at 16-8 ratio absolutely um, not and for those that yes those that say have um predisposed with thyroid issues some adrenal dysfunction or hormone imbalance or menstrual cycle irregularities 
uh, not something to play around with until you get those things right or under, yeah, quite guided professionalism with a practitioner. Yeah, yeah. And look, if you're, if you're sort of wondering, um, you know, where you sit in the state of readiness, then really I, um, I look at that, the, the use of overnight fasting as a progression. So you'd first of all um, look at the, your fasting meals, sorry, you'd look at your fasting windows between meals um, and, you know, if you can comfortably go that four to five hours and you don't feel like you're going to bite anyone's head off or chew your own arm off in that period, um, <laughs> then you know that, you, you know, you're progressing along that um that fat adaptation continuum and that maybe looking at extending your overnight fast is something that you could progress to next. That's sort of um, the, I guess, the conversation that I would have with clients in clinic to find out whether they're ready to really look at progressing their their overnight fasting window. All right. And um, there will be an episode on the Healing Grumpy Athletes podcast with Nathan Shearer that goes into a case study or real-life scenario of a professional athlete who has become fat-adapted and using lower-carbohydrate, higher-fat, LCHF, uh, to really propel his performance. So look out for that episode to understand the impact of what Ellie's just explained in terms of getting fat-adapted. It goes a very long way. Yeah, yeah. Um, for anybody out there that's really interested as well, um, have a look at some of Sachin Panda's research because he's done a lot of the research around this 16-8 um, fasting Okay, brilliant. Ratio. Actually, I just remembered another question. So often um, we recommend and utilise bone broth as a great gut healer, immunity protocol, great to boost up when an athlete's going into taper to prevent um, any immunity issues. Mm-hmm. What's your favourite alternative for a vegetarian or vegan when it comes to bone broth? Yeah, so obviously um, bone broth is a, a, a bit of a superfood that we have to really work around on a, a vegan and vegetarian protocol. Um, so what you can do is look to other sources of things like glutamine, um, which are really beautiful for um, gut lining Uh and also looking at things like aloe vera juice, which are, again, really lovely to help reduce um, inflammation in the gut lining. Um, Then also just making sure that you're supporting your immune system with really powerful antioxidants, so things like vitamin C, especially in the lead-up to race day. Um, And then, you know, on top of those two things, even having a vegetable broth um, is still still going to be wonderful yeah. um, because of just the nutrient density even of a vegetable broth. Okay. And what about, say, the gelatin aspect? Yeah, so that's something that we, we can't really replace on a vegan or vegetarian protocol. Mm. So that's one of the things that you just have to be aware of, that um, missed. Yeah. you are going to miss out on, on something like gelatin. Mm. Okay, amazing. I'm so pleased we had this conversation because I think with some conscientious education and effort and consideration, um, vegan and vegetarian athletes can thrive. Uh, But as, yeah, the summary of the podcast, it just, you've got to do some research and be quite 
particular in your pathology markers and you know how you build your plate and that takes guidance like you guys study for years to know this stuff you can't everyone can't expect to know exactly what to do yeah exactly um you know i i completely understand and um and in many cases support the reasons for why people decide to go down the vegan or vegetarian route because i myself am really passionate about um you know, the concerns around food sustainability and also the environment and the impact that the meat industry has on the environment. Um, but I really want to make sure that people that are deciding to go down the vegan or vegetarian route for those reasons, that they're really working smartly. And they're yeah. supporting their self, themselves and their health um, and getting the right information so that they can continue to thrive and also continue to, to train and, and race for for, for many, many years to come. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Ellie. Can you just give us your social media links and handles so people can find you and I'll put a bunch of links in the show notes of a couple of things we've spoken about today. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks, Katie. So my Instagram handle is nutritionally. So that's nutrition Ellie. And I'm working with the natural nutritionist. So you can find the natural nutritionist at the natural nutritionist or online at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au. So check us out. Brilliant. And please feel free to comment with questions because I'm sure this won't be Ellie's first and last time on the show. We can do follow-up. So later on us, what do you want to know? What we miss? Give us your ideas and we'll go from there. You're wonderful. All right. Thanks, Thanks Ellie. Katie, for having me on the show. Really, really nice to chat to you today. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.